Well, good morning. It's so good to have you here joining us in our Winnable campus. Welcome to all those who are joining us online at our Washington campus as well. We're glad to have you with you with us. I just want to say thank you to Branson for that video. Now you know that I didn't tackle anybody for the mic. I'm here on purpose. Um, as he said, my name is Mikkel White, and I serve in congregational care here on staff. And I'm also in seminary. I'm in school at Asbury Theological uh, Seminary. And I take most of my classes online, but I do travel out to Kentucky a few times a year. Or as my four-year-old daughter likes to say, I travel to Tuntucky. Um, she's, like I said, she's four, and we have eight and nine-year-old boys as well. So our lives are crazy, and I'm really, really glad to be here. Um, last week, we finished up a sermon series on David. And this week, we have the first of a two-part series that we're calling Paradox. And the idea here is that um, there's some things that are in the Bible, some things that are in Scripture that are really sometimes confusing to us and seem self-contradictory. And so we're going to explore some of those together. So basically, a paradox, what it is, is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement that when you look at it, it proves to be well-founded. So I'm not going to make you write all of that down in your, your programs. It's just an absurd statement that proves to be well-founded. And the one we're going to be looking at this morning is from Luke chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them. We're going to put a lot of the scriptures on the screen, but that might help you follow along with the story. So Luke chapter 4. And the setting here is that Jesus has begun his ministry, right? So he, he was baptized in the Jordan River. He was baptized by um, John the Baptist, and the Spirit of the Lord descended on him like a dove. And then, led by the Spirit, he went into the wilderness for 40 days where he was tempted, he fasted, and having withstood the temptation of Satan, he returned full of the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee. And he went to the synagogue on Sabbath, which is just the Jewish place of worship on the Jewish day of worship. And he gets there, and the attendant hands him a scroll. And probably there was some sort of um, schedule for what days they read what scrolls. And that day, the scroll that was given to him was from Isaiah. So Jesus opens the scroll, and he finds his place, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I love this passage. It's one of my favorites. And the reason is because when I read this passage, when I read what Jesus read from Isaiah, I can't help but think about the Lord's Prayer that says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I begin to think that this is the Lord's work. And maybe I get a little proud, and I think the people who are doing this work, they're the ones doing the real Lord's work. And I want to be clear, I do think that people who are working to bring good news to the poor and are setting slaves free, they are doing the Lord's work. But as I sat in this passage and prepared for this message, I looked at the fuller context of what Jesus was really getting at here, and I began to be convicted and the center of that conviction rests in the paradox that we're going to discover together. 
So let's look a little bit more at this context. One of the things that we might miss when we read this would have been staring them in the face. Because we, we sometimes get some churchy language and we say things like, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And what we think we're saying is that Jesus is his first name and Christ might be his last name. And Messiah means Savior, so we're good. But actually it's kind of redundant. Because what we're really saying when we say Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is Jesus, the Anointed One, the Anointed One. See, Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. And Christ is the Greek word for anointed one. And there's a special relationship between anointing and the Holy Spirit. So Luke, in this gospel, is doing something really powerful when he says, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, led him into the wilderness. Then he returned full of the power of the Spirit, and he stands up in the synagogue and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, for he has anointed me. He's claiming these titles of Christ and Messiah. So the claim here is Jesus is the Christ. And we know that he's claiming this because he sits down. See, this is maybe a little confusing. They stood up to read scripture and then sat down to teach on it, which would be very difficult for many of us. Um, so he sits down and he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The spirit of the Lord is on me, and he's anointed me to bring this good news. So initially, the people there are pumped. They're so excited. See, they're Jews. And at that time, Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. So they hear Jesus saying, I've come to bring good news to the poor and set the captives free. And they're thinking, we are captive of Rome. This is great news. We're going to start a political revolution. We have a king. Finally, we're good to go. They're so excited. And they've been waiting and waiting for generations and generations. For hundreds of years, they've been waiting for the Messiah to come. And finally, he's here See, the expectation that they had is that this would be a warrior king, the champion of Israel. Their expectation, it was that the Messiah would be a warrior king, the champion of Israel. You might remember when we were talking about David over the last couple of weeks, that David was also anointed. See, anointing was often a way of setting someone apart, setting someone apart to bring freedom to God's people. So in 1 Samuel 16, 13, this says, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And do you remember what David did? When the Philistines came against Israel, and Goliath came out as their champion, and no one else in Israel had the courage to stand against him. David stood up, and he said, there is a God in Israel, and you will know it. And that day, the Israelites were not conquered by the Philistines. They were defended by their champion. 
And so the expectation that the people hearing Jesus had that day is that Jesus would also defend them against the Romans. I mean, even just a few verses later in Luke 4, 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. So this is all happening at the same time. Jesus gets up, reads this passage, says, today it's fulfilled in your hearing. They're excited, all spoke well of him. And then it's like something starts to tickle the back of their heads. They're like, wait, we know him. We know him. Isn't this Joseph's son? We know, we know this guy. How can he possibly be the Messiah? And then there's like a record scratch, and the music stops, and everything gets quiet. And they're like, because then Jesus drops the paradox. And here's what it is. The Israelite Messiah is here for all people. The one who is supposed to be there to free the Jews is here for all people. Let's, re- let's read this together. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus here is referencing two stories that they would have known really well. And the first one is about Elijah. So Elijah was a prophet, and while he was a prophet, it says the sky was shut for three and a half years, which means that there was a drought. And because there was a drought, there was a famine. The crops needed the rain to grow. And so Elijah is sent to this woman, a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And he comes to her and he says, will you share some bread with me? And she says, I only have a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. And my plan is to make a small loaf of bread, share it with my son, and then prepare to die. And he said, if you will share that loaf of bread with me, I promise you will not run out of flour or oil until it rains again. And she does. And she's miraculously provided for. And Jesus here is saying, don't you know that there were widows in Israel? And yet, this miraculous provision went to someone else. And Elisha, when he was a prophet, there was a man named Naaman, and he was a Syrian. And he had leprosy, which is an infectious skin disease that's incurable. And he's talking about this, and this little girl says, hey, I think I know of a guy back in Israel, and he might be able to help you. So Naaman travels to see Elisha, but Elisha doesn't even come out to see him, doesn't even talk to him. He sends a messenger, and he says, Naaman, go wash seven times in the Jordan River, and you'll be healed. And initially, Naaman is indignant. Don't you know, there are rivers in Syria. Why did I come all the way here? to wash. And one of the guys that's with him says, Naaman, if he had asked you to do something really big and flashy and glorious, you would have done it. Just go try it out. And he does. And he's healed. And Jesus here is saying, don't you know that there were lepers in Israel at that time? And this miraculous healing 
it went to someone else. So this, this for the Jews that day, was self-contradictory. The Jewish Messiah is here for all people? That doesn't make any sense. But the paradox is that the first part is self-contradictory, and then when you look at it a little closer, it proves to be well-founded. So if we look a little closer, all the way back to Genesis, we see when the Lord called Abram and said, come, follow me, like come to the place that I will show you, I will make your name great, I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This was always going to be for all people. Always. He was always going to be the champion of the world. Always. But the people who were there that day, they couldn't handle this truth. Because for many of them, the pain of the oppression that had lasted for generations was too great to believe that the Messiah could be here for anyone other than them. And so their response was that they tried to kill Jesus. It says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Jesus walked right through the crowd that day because it wasn't his time. But a few years later, it would be his time. And he would willingly lay down his life and die. And in his death, burial, and resurrection, he would bring freedom to us who are captive to the forces of darkness. And he would pay the debt of sin for us who are poor. This is good news for us. And there's hope, too, because there's a different response that we see in Scripture. The disciples followed Jesus and joined his mission. The disciples followed Jesus and joined his mission. So just a chapter later, Jesus would come to a man named Levi. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. A few weeks ago, I got the chance to go on a short-term mission trip to Ethiopia with Covenant Church and some people from our church. And I want to stand here in the shoes of those who have come before me and say that we partner with really, really good organizations. So we got the chance to work with Sports Friends International. And we put on a soccer camp for young boys who were about 10 to 15 years old. And every day we played soccer. We did, well, we didn't actually play soccer because we were really bad at it. But, um, well, some of, not all of us were bad, but I was really bad. Anyways, the boys played soccer. We participated where we can, could in some activities, did crafts together. And every day there was some teaching. A lot of times there was dramas. And we gradually built up 
So the first night we talked about honesty and then good choices, then self-control. And on the last night we talked about ultimate love. And there was a foot washing ceremony and there was a drama on the prodigal son and there was some teaching and evangelism. And a lot of it was in a language that I didn't understand, but I could follow a lot of what was happening and the drama on the prodigal son especially. And I'm a little ashamed to tell you that I got a little bored during parts of it because I've seen it before. And my heart broke a little bit for myself when I looked around to see these 10 and 15 year old boys weeping because they didn't know that a love like that could be for them. And afterwards, we went back to our group times. So I, I was on a team with nine boys and each of them got the chance to put into their own words what that drama was all about. And then they had the opportunity to make personal decisions to follow Jesus. And all nine boys on my team made decisions to follow Jesus. All nine of them. This is really good news. And this, this was pretty true across the board. Like all eight of our teams, all but one or two boys on each of the teams made decisions to follow Jesus. And they're going to be followed up with by Christian coaches in their hometowns. They're not going to be left alone. But I realized that for them, the good news was really, really good. And for me, somewhere along the way, the good news became old news. And I started to make following Jesus more about being a better human, a better version of myself, than about sharing this good news with other people. And I do think that following Jesus makes us, should make us better humans, but I lost the urgency of sharing this good news with other people. Because here's the thing, this good news is for all people. It's for you and it's for me. It's for the people that we like and the people we really don't like. It's for American citizens and Mexican citizens. It's for people all over the world. It's for people who have come to our communities seeking refuge from violence. It's for people who have come to our communities seeking better jobs. It's for people who have left our communities to find something better. It's for people who live in Ethiopia and India and the Dominican Republic. It's for people in El Paso and Dayton who are victims of violence. And this is the hardest one for me. It's for the perpetrators of the violence too. And so, we have some choices this morning. If you have never made a decision to follow Jesus, today might be a good day for that just as the widow in Zarephath risked the final comfort she had to offer her son, and Naaman risked his pride, and Levi the tax collector left his livelihood 
everything that he had to make a living, so too might we be asked to leave something to follow him. And I'm not going to stand here and say that that will be easy, but I do know it will be good. And if you're like me, and you've been following Jesus for a long time, and somewhere along this, the way this good news has become old news, for you, you might pray and ask, as David did, restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit in me. And then, Lord, where would you send me? Who are the people that I struggle to believe this good news is for? Who are the people that I would rather not have this good news? Lord, break my heart for them and send me. In a few minutes, we are going to have the opportunity to receive communion together. And here's the thing about communion, is that we're partaking of the body of Jesus the Christ that was broken for us and his blood which was shed for us. And when we do that, we are receiving the one who was sent to bring us this good news. We cannot resist being sent by the one we've received. We receive in communion the one who was sent to bring us this good news, and we cannot resist being sent by the one we've received. So for you, you might be sent across your office building to bring this good news to your coworkers. The Lord might be sending you to the end of your driveway to bring this good news to your coworkers. But I'm not going to limit the Holy Spirit because he might, he just might, be sending you across the world to share this good news with people who are not from where you live. So as we come, I just invite you to be in a spirit of hearing from the Lord and asking him where it is that he would like to send you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this good news. Lord, would you remind us that this good news really is so good. Lord, would you break our hearts for those who haven't heard this news yet. Would you lay on our hearts the place where you would have us to go. Lord, we long to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So give us the words to say and the burden of this good news. We lift this up in the power of the Holy Spirit to you. Amen.